began my last sermon from John 17 by asking some questions. What does the church need today? Our church, or any church, what do we need to thrive as Christians? What do we need for faithful lives to see vibrant churches? And the answer that I argued was holiness. What we need is holiness, true heart-level devotion to Christ that results in holy living. And I argued that from what Jesus prays for his disciples in John 17. He prayed that they would be sanctified, that they would be made holy. In light of that need, I have another question for you tonight. What is the biggest threat to us attaining holiness? What is the main impediment for you to actually grow in Christ-likeness? Growing in our moral separation from the world, growing in our ability to actually put off sin and put off and put on righteousness. I think that the most dangerous thing is not circumstances in our life, right? So if, if this problem at work would just go away, then I could really get things under control. If God would give me a spouse, then I could get this under control. If this financial hardship would go away and I could quit working so hard could really devote time to God's Word. If this health issue would go away, then I could actually find time to do what God commands. I would have success in my battle against sin. No, it's not circumstances. The most dangerous thing to our holiness is very small, but it is hugely comprehensive. It's unassuming. It's disarming even. It appears non-threatening, but actually brings death wherever it goes. It appears hip and relevant and cool but it's actually very ancient it gives the illusion of intellectual virtue but is actually a smoke screen the greatest threat to our holiness is a lie the greatest of all lies has God really said has God really said these are the first recorded words of the devil in Genesis 3 and he has yet to give up that challenge it is his main It is his most powerful weapon, his most deadly tool, and the heart of his strategy. Has God really said? Did God really say that? Contrary to this heresy of all heresies, Christ makes very clear in our text tonight that we have a way to know the truth. We have the antidote to this great lie of all lies. We have the Word. So let's read John 17. I'll begin in verse 14, but we'll focus on the end of verse 17. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Let's pray. Father, feed us tonight on your word. Sanctify us in your truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight I want to examine what Jesus says about the word, what the word says about us, what the word says about Jesus. And my aim is not merely to give a lecture on the doctrine of Scripture, as foundational as that may be to our faith, but to examine and to apply Christ's understanding of the Word to our very hearts. 
If God's word is truth, what does that mean for us as we live, as we are husbands and wives, as we are sons and daughters, as we are employers and employees, as we are teachers and students? What does this mean for us? What does it mean for our speech, for our relationships, for our finances? So let's begin with what Jesus says about the Word. He states very plainly that your Word is truth. Father, thy Word is truth. And let's take this seemingly simple phrase and dig into it a little bit. What, what Word is he talking about? Is he talking about the Bible here? Well, Jesus didn't have a Bible like ours yet. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. He probably had access to the Old Testament writings, but he certainly wasn't carrying around bushels of scrolls of the Old Testament writings with him from Galilee and Samaria and Judea. This seemingly simple reference to God's Word has been interpreted various ways throughout church history. Augustine believed that Jesus' reference to the Father's Word in verse 17 is a reference to himself, that is, to the incarnate Word. The word that John points out in the very first chapter of this book. John Calvin believed that thy word is truth refers to the doctrine of the gospel in its totality. The revelation of God's redemptive plan seen in Jesus. So is he talking about the Bible or about himself or about the gospel? I think that he's talking about all of God's revelation. His self-revelation. The totality of his self-disclosure. And I want us to not fall into the temptation of dividing up God's Word as if He has said one thing in the past and He's saying something very different today. That's not how God speaks. God's Word is united in its message and power throughout history, even if it took different forms. What God reveals in the Bible, in His inscripturated Word, is in complete alignment with His plan of redemption, which is His gospel Word, which is affected or brought about by the apex of all truth, the incarnate Word. They are all in alignment. And that was a big statement, so I'm going to say it again. What God reveals in the Bible, His inscripturated, written Word, is in complete alignment with His plan of redemption, which is His gospel Word, His good news. And that good news is affected or has been brought about by the apex of all truth, the revelation of Himself, the incarnate Word of God, Jesus Christ. Let me unpack that a little bit, looking around in our Bible. Jesus is the Word made flesh, the incarnate Word. If you would, flip with me to John chapter 1. I know we've been there already, but it's important. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Before anything was created, there was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word was with the Father from the beginning, co-equal with the Father in both eternality, power, vitality, holiness. But the Apostle doesn't stop there. He goes on to explain what this Word has done. Verse 14, 
And the Word became flesh. That which was spoken took on flesh. He dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word did not remain with the Father, but took on flesh and became a man, came down to earth to make God known. The God whose Word was heard in the Old Testament through the prophets has become flesh that the Word might reveal God. Jesus, the Word of God, makes statements like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the fullness of divine revelation. He is the apex of God's self-disclosure. So much so that he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. To see Jesus, to see the Word of God, the truth of God, is to see the Father. The author of Hebrews agrees that Jesus that agrees with John that Jesus is the apex of revelation. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 tells us that long ago, at many times and in many ways, he's talking about in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed to be the heir of all things, and through whom He also created the world. Jesus is the eternally spoken Word of God that took on flesh that the perfect truth of God might be revealed to mankind. But the Word does not end with the life of Jesus. Jesus makes it clear in John seventeen fourteen that He has given the Father's Word to the apostles. In this Word, He has explained the redemptive significance of Jesus' own life and work. He has revealed the will of the Father, the scope of the plan, all of this to the apostles... Furthermore, Jesus explains that He and the Father will send the Holy Spirit to guide the apostles into all truth. 16 verse 13. After Pentecost, when the fullness of the Holy Spirit comes down and indwells the apostles, the men of God will be led by the Spirit of God to put God's Word into writing. That's how we get to from spoken to incarnate to delivered to written in scripturated Word. Men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit to create God's holy, inscripturated Word. So let's take a moment to see what the Bible teaches about God's Word. God's Word, first, is sufficient. It is sufficient. And by that, I do not mean it contains every truth. There is truth contained outside of the Bible. The dictionary contains truth. The phone book contains truth. One pastor wrote about the sufficiency. The scriptures do not tell us everything about everything. They don't tell us how to program a computer or organize a library or swing a golf club. They don't tell us how far the sun is away from the earth or what DNA is or how to remove an appendix. But this is not an expression of any deficiency in their part. For there is a focus and a goal to the sufficiency of scriptures. Everything I need in order to live a life to the glory of God and to enjoy Him forever is found in God's Word. Scripture has within it all that we need for a life of holiness, of sanctification, of wisdom. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 19. Not 119, 19. Chapter 19. 
Psalm 19 contains several verses that proclaim the sufficiency of Scripture. And I won't unpack all of them, but I want to highlight a few of them, starting with verse 1. Excuse me, verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving or restoring the soul. That means there's nothing lacking Within it, God's word is sufficient to mend a broken soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. God's word is complete, thorough, sure, lacking in nothing needed to make someone wise. We don't have to look elsewhere to find wisdom, it's in the word. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. God's precept, His divine principles for character and conduct are upright. They're proper. They're holy. They're free of deceit and falsehood. And they therefore produce a holy joy in the hearts of God's people. God's word is sufficient to provide the proper path to lasting joy. So we don't have to seek joy from places revealed other than God's word. God's word is the genuine source of lasting joy. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God's word is pure. It could be translated uh, clear, demystifying. It pulls the haze away from us. God's word is able to enlighten our eyes, to open our eyes, to be able to see through the cloudiness of sin, the cloudiness of this world, the convoluted nature of things spinning around us. Scripture can take us from confusion to clarity. That's God's Word. We could go on in this psalm, and I challenge you to read it later, thinking about God's sufficiency. But I'll stop here. Back in John 17, 17, we see the context that Jesus is talking about. Specifically, that God's Word is sufficient for our sanctification. Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus says. Your Word is truth. We don't have to wonder how we can grow in holiness. We don't have to stumble around and figure out how to please God. We don't have to watch the stars and try and read our palms to receive visions from God or anything else. God's Word has been given to us. To know God's Word is to know what holiness demands. Psalm 119.9 How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to God's Word. If you want to know God's plan for you, read His Word. If you want to know what pleases Him, read His Word. What brings blessing to your life, study His Word. If you want to be a faithful husband or wife, feed on His Word. If you want to know how to be a blessing to others, read God's Word. It contains everything we need to grow in holiness. We don't need to hear all of the latest self-help solutions found on the Oprah show. We, need, we don't need to change our circumstances. We need to meditate and submit to God's word. Satan would have us would have no problem allowing us be, to believe in the truthfulness of God's word. Catch that? Satan would not have a problem with us affirming the truthfulness of God's word as long as we deny its sufficiency. He'd be more than happy for us to seek out truth from other sources. You know, that Jesus, he was nice and he had some good things. But if we really want to be wise, then we need to read Gandhi and Muhammad and Joseph Smith and Buddha and Karl Marx and Confucius. 
He wants us to equivocate on truth, to drink the postmodern lie that different truths can be equally or unequally true. What's true for you may not be true for me. He wants us to think that each of these truths found throughout the world all lead to the same place. And it's the same old temptation that you ought to hear with a hiss, has God really said. God's Word is sufficient for us. When we have a problem raising our children, God's Word has wisdom for us. When we have problems in our marriage, God's Word has wisdom for us. When we have problems with our boss and with our finances, with our health, with our church, with anything, God's Word has wisdom for us. It may not tell us exactly what we should do, like where to go to college or who to marry, but it gives us principles by which we can apply and live a holy life pleasing to God. Do you have confidence in that? Do you believe that? Is God's Word the first place that you turn when you have a problem with money? Do you ask, what does God's Word say when your children's behavior seems to be declining rather than progressing? Do you investigate God's truth when you have concerns about the state of the church? Or you have concerns about your own state, your own growth in holiness? Do you run to something other than God's Word? It's easy, it's easier to click and pull up a blog and read about something rather than doing the hard work ourselves of reading God's Word. It's easier for other people, other voices to feed us than to actually be nourished on God's Word alone. God's Word is our sufficient truth for all of life and godliness. It is sufficient. Another important aspect of God's Word that we need to mention is its trustworthiness. Very much related to its sufficiency, but God's Word is trustworthy. The old Hebrew word in the Old Testament that's used to describe God's trustworthiness is tied to the idea of firmness, of hard. God is firm. He is a rock-solid foundation upon which our faith may be built. There is no shaking, no weakness in Him, no cracks in His faithfulness, no imperfections in His dealings. When we say that the Word is trustworthy, we can believe that because it is His Word. He is the one that speaks through it. He is perfectly holy, incapable of lying. Therefore, His Word is incapable of deceit. It is trustworthy. He is all-knowing. Therefore, His Word is trustworthy because He is incapable of misinformation or error. He knows all things. He can do all things, and He can bring about His sovereign will without any impediment. Therefore, His promises are guaranteed to come to pass. Which was so wonderfully pointed out by Sean this morning. God's not merely predicting when He makes a promise. He's promising and doing at the same time. The scriptures are trustworthy, worthy of our trust. And if that's so, then we ought to examine what His Word says about us. It says that Adam was made and placed in a garden. Placed in a garden to enjoy communion with God, to rule and reign with God, to subdue and fill the earth and fill the earth with little image bearers, proclaiming the truth of God. He was given God's Word that he could eat of anything except for a tree. But the day that he would eat of it, he would surely die. 
And then the deceiver came, that ancient serpent, who was craftier than any beast of the field, and he fired his fiercest weapon. Did God really say that? And Adam and Eve took the bait. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they plunged the world into darkness and disarray. Instead of God's garden expanding, and God's kingdom of truth reigning over the earth, the world and all its inhabitants fell to the power of the prince of darkness, the father of lies, who holds the whole world under his deceitful sway to this very day. And later, God's word is given... It's given in its, most, in its clearest expression yet to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. He gave them a very clear roadmap on how to obey God. They had no excuse. The problem was that they did not believe God's word. They fell to the lie of, did God really say? They didn't heed God's warnings against the temptations of this world. They were led astray by their sins and eventually led astray by the worldliness of the surrounding nations. The problem was not with the word that they had received. The problem was that it was still external to them. It was written on tablets of stone while their hearts remained hard and cold, bent in upon themselves. But the Bible is not only trustworthy in what it says about us. It's also trustworthy in what it says about Christ. In the fullness of time, the very Word came and He took on flesh and He lived a perfect life of holiness, perfectly sanctified from the world. He proclaimed the truth of God in the face of Satan's best opposition. He was tempted personally by Satan himself. And in the face of that temptation, how did the incarnate Word respond? The incarnate word rebuffed the temptation of Satan by quoting God's word from the Old Testament. Further arguing that the Old Testament word was sufficient, by the way. Later, in fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises, his word, he willingly went to the cross and bore the death that was promised not only to Adam in the garden, but also earned by every sinner that came from Adam, which is me and you. He was dead and buried. The eternal spoken word of God tasted silence. The silence of the grave. But the Bible also says that Christ was raised after three days. This resurrected word lives even now. And he is speaking at the right hand of the Father. He, along with the Father, speaks forth the Holy Spirit to speak new life into his people. To replace cold hearts of stone with new hearts. Hearts that have the very law of God carved on them. Hearts that want, that cause us to want to obey, to grow in holiness. Causing us to begin to hate the darkness and to flee and to run to the light. Causing us to yearn for more of God's word. So do you believe that God's word is trustworthy? Do you hear what it says about your heart? That it is bent towards evil and sin. Do you hear this call that he calls us to repent and believe? Believers, do you hear what God says about you in Christ? Do you trust it? Do you believe that God has actually forgiven you in Christ? This is the great news of the gospel. Christ 
Christ's work on your behalf has freed you from the bondage of sin and death. You stand condemned no more. Christ's people have been cleansed from their sin and defilement. They've been robed in Christ's righteousness and made sons and daughters of the Most High God. He doesn't see your sin anymore. That sexual immorality of your past, it's been forgiven. He doesn't see your murderous, angry heart because you've been forgiven. He doesn't see your laziness and apathy or your bitterness, your irritability. You've been forgiven. You've been freed from the terrible debt that you owed. And there is therefore no more condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You can trust what the Bible says about you in Christ. God's word is truth. You are actually forgiven. Don't fall for the lies of Satan that tell you that you have not been forgiven in Christ. That you are a special kind of sinner for whom Christ's work was not quite enough. That's what he wants you to believe. That Christ's work was plenty efficient for everyone else, but not for your special case of sin. You were worse than everybody else. Don't hear that lie. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. And the word of God states that you cannot be forget, condemned for something that he has already judged on the cross. Trust in that word and trust in the one who is speaking that word to you even now. Trust in the incarnate word who bore the punishment in your place. God's word is trustworthy. God's word is not only trustworthy in what it says about you and me and about what it says in Christ, but it's trustworthy about what it says in the future. You see, God's word does not end with the written word, the scriptures. Turn with me to Revelation 19. One more time, God's Word will interact with humanity, but on a global and personal scale. Revelation chapter 19. Starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He, has a clo- he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which he will strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God's word will return in judgment. The Word will judge by His very Word. The Word of God is pictured with a sword of judgment coming out of His mouth. He will speak judgment against the unrighteous nations. For believers, this scene in Revelation should be a great source of holy encouragement. God's Word will be vindicated. Evil and wickedness will be brought down to judgment and all the wrongs of this world, all the injustices will be made right. We can bear under sins made against us now because we know that God will take care of it in the end. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that God will finally vindicate His judgment? That the world will be taken care of? If you deny it, or if you doubt it, this road will be very hard for you. You will be a very anxious person every time you watch the news or read the paper. You'll see the great injustices of this age and you'll wonder, is God even there? Does He see this? Where is He? You'll see poverty, brokenness, the parading around of sin, the flaunting of immorality, the boasting of self, and you'll say, maybe maybe God's not enough. Maybe I need to rethink this whole Christianity thing. But if you hear God's Word... Remember God's promises that He will return and read of God's coming victory in Revelation, then you can stand for holiness in this life even when it's hard. You can have the strength to persevere by the power of His Holy Spirit even when things seem so daunting and dark. If you do not believe in God's Word, let me warn you that God's wrath stands poised against you. All the weight of His fury will be poured out upon those who resist the truth of His Word. The Bible says that God is patient, and that is true. But His patience does not last forever. Your judgment is assured. You must submit to God's Word, recognize our own sinfulness, our need for a Savior. The only one that can save you from the judgment of God's Word is God's very incarnate Word Himself. There's no way to escape His judgment but by coming to Him. Hear His word tonight. Trust in the promise of His grace. Come to Him and believe. And you will avert judgment. Because He was judged in your place. As I close tonight, I want to offer an extended little application about the sufficiency of truthfulness, the trustworthiness of God's word. We make this vivid, practical. Imagine with me a scenario. A man comes home from work and he's had a rough day. He's looking forward to sitting down on the couch, to relaxing in a quiet house, watching the news with no interruptions, and eating some delicious meal that his wife had made for him. But he walks in the door and he hears the kids screaming. They're arguing over whose fault it was that permanent marker got all over the wall. And he ignores it. He just walks right into the kitchen. And he looks. He sees his wife. She barely acknowledges him. And it drives him nuts. He says, what's for dinner? She said, well, I've made us some salads. And in clear frustration, he rolls his eyes and he walks away mumbling something about why, why does he have to suffer just because she's on a diet. But he just goes. And he goes, he's going to get his couch. But before he gets there, one of the kids comes up to him and tells him that the younger son had gotten sent to the principal's office that day. And so he snaps. He screams at his kids out of anger. He screams at his wife because of the stupid salads. He screams because the, cou- the whole house is in disarray. And he storms off to his bedroom. Any of that sound familiar? In this scenario, what lies of Satan has this man believed? What parts of God's word has he practically denied the sufficiency or the truthfulness of? 
Well, he believed that his time at home was primarily about his comfort and his relaxation. That all of his work during the day had earned him the right to peace. He believed several other lies. That to be a Christian husband is to be served rather than to serve. That his position as husband and head of the household entitled him to automatic deference. Everyone else should cater to me and my desires. He fell to the lie that kids are a nuisance. They're an impediment to my happiness and therefore not a blessing. And he believed that his harsh words said in anger would be effective in producing change in the behavior of his children. So let's run through this scenario again. Thinking about how this man might respond if he were saturated with God's Word. If he were meditating, seeking to honor the sufficiency and the truthfulness of God's Word and be made holy through it. He's finished work. He's exhausted. But he reminds himself of Ephesians 4.32, which he read during his quiet time this morning. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. So he prays a little prayer before he walks in the door for a kind and tender heart. He hears the kids screaming as soon as he opens the door about who put permanent marker all over the wall. So rather than his preference of just ignoring the problem and hoping that it goes away on its own, which never happens, or hoping that his wife will just handle it, sometimes happens, but still not good. He decides to engage. He remembers Ephesians 6, 4, which calls a father, a father, to bring up the children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, in the discipline of the Lord. And so he takes the time to calmly sit down, to talk to both of the offended parties, to figure out who actually wrote on the walls, And to take the guilty child aside. To explain to them that messing up property like this is bad stewardship. It's it's wasteful. It's ungrateful. It's actually sinful. But he also reminds them of the gospel. Which is fresh on his mind because he had just meditated upon the gospel in Ephesians 4.32. Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. He disciplines the boy as is appropriate and sets the boy out on trying to scrub the marker on the wall. Then he walks into the kitchen and is barely acknowledged by his wife. Rather than being annoyed by that, he decided to obey his verse. To be kind to her. To be tender-hearted. To forgive her as he has been forgiven in Christ. He decides she's probably had a rough day dealing with the boys. He just had five minutes of it and he's ready to be done. She's had them all day. So I'll give her a little grace. He decides to ask her, Honey, how can I help you with dinner? She says, I'm having, We're having salads. You can help cut the carrots. He knows his preference of what he wants for supper. That might not be it. But he decides, I'm going to love her. And I'm going to be thankful for the hard work she has put into this meal. And then he hears the child come running down the hall to tattle on his younger son who got sent to the principal office that day. And rather than getting immediately angry and yelling at the boy, 
He reminds himself from Proverbs that a soft answer turns away wrath. And that sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. And he goes into reminding the son about sin and about judgment, but about the grace of Christ. And is winsome when he does it because he is using sweetness of speech. This is just one little example of how applying the sufficiency, the truthfulness of God's word and seeking to be sanctified by it and to live it out. That's one way that we can do it. We can use God's word to fuel our holy service. Or we can exchange the truth of God's word for a lie. Which will you do? Will you be sanctified by God's word? Or will you follow the lie of Satan? And say, has God really said? Let me pray for us. Our God and King, we... We confess to you that we know what your word says, and too often we fail to do it. We believe the lie of Satan that yelling in anger can actually produce change in our children. That yelling at our spouse will actually make us happy. That indulging in sin again and again will actually bring different results this time. Father, forgive us. Cleanse us of our sin. Help us to look to Christ afresh. To see the good news found in your incarnate word. To hear his voice through the Holy Spirit, Lord. To find in your word all the wisdom that we need to live a holy life. And let us look forward to the return of our great incarnate word. Father, we ask this tonight in Christ's name. Amen.